All right, welcome back to Patriots of the Core podcast. This is episode 94, and I've got a guest on here that I wanted, I've wanted on for a long time, a retired combat controller, Ish Viegas. And Ish, I know years ago, I think I'd asked you to be on the show, and you weren't real interested, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. Is that what happened many, several years ago? Yeah, it, it's kind of weird, you know, like I, I was in a funk, I guess you could call it PTSD or whatever, but. You know, I really didn't want to talk about things. I didn't want to go public with anything. And um, just up until recently, you know, is, is when I decided, you know what? Like, you know, I, it kind of like I got my confidence back. You know what I'm saying? But, yeah, I, I was not ready at the time. And I meant to reach out to you, but I'm glad you reached out to me because, I mean, I feel like it, it has been time for a little while. But, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't ready at that time. Okay, I get it. I know in one of your shoot, for sure, two of your teammates that I know have told me in the past, hey, I'm not ready yet. Now, one of them, uh, he told me last year, he's like, hey, I'm ready to do it, but only in person. Yeah. And so he was supposed to be here and, um, you know, it didn't happen. There's a that fuel shortage last year, like over a year ago in North Carolina, well, in the East, East Coast. And so anyway, we'll do it so, at some point, but probably in person. Of course, I, I'd prefer in person anyway with all of them. You um, spent, what was it, 19, how many years as a combat controller in the Air Force? Uh, 22 years and nine months. Okay. All right. And you've got, just to get a little a little background on you, how many deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq and then other places in the world? Uh, to Afghanistan, I got seven. I did the initial invasion and then uh, seven more, or seven total. And then to Iraq, I just got the one, the initial invasion. Um, I've also done a trip to South America and uh, Africa as well. Very seasoned patriot here. So the only thing I want to talk about maybe in the, as far as your pipeline, because I've had several, several controllers on, and we've talked about what combat controllers do, and we've talked about the training pipeline. But for you, what was the most challenging part of your training i mean the whole thing honestly i you know when in high school i didn't play organized sports you know the only type of stuff i did was with my buddies you know i i don't necessarily call that you know working out or anything like that but yeah i never worked out i rode my bike a lot um you know we grew up pretty pretty poor so i rode my skateboard my bike i walked a lot of places Um, and then I'd spend some of my summers in Mexico, you know, working, helping out, you know, my family down there. Um, and it involved a lot of climbing mountains and everything. So I was in somewhat shape, but I wasn't in any type of shape for the pipeline whatsoever. And, you know, swimming, swimming was, I'd say the hardest part of the process because I really hadn't swam much at all. Um, my, the training that I'd done prior to the pipeline, it, I wouldn't even call it swimming, was just mainly floating, you know, and I actually tried uh, swimming in the lake and my buddy Eric, who's, you know, since passed away, actually saved my life because I was actually drowning and he held me up until the boat actually came by to pick us up. But, you know, other than that, I was learning as I was going, I was 128 pounds. Um, so pretty skinny kid. And, you know, I think the only thing I had going for me was 
I was stubborn uh, and I didn't quit. And, you know, I, I'm thankful that I was active as a kid. What about the swimming? How was that? I imagine is swimming the hardest for pretty much everybody? Yeah. Uh, swimming is like, the, they call it the great equalizer. Um, you know, cause you have some guys that are really tough. I mean, they're just beasts uh, on land, you know, and, um, but not a lot of people put a lot of work in the pool, you know, unless you're, uh, some sort of, uh, uh, what's it called? The, uh, water polo water player polo. or something like that. You know, you, you, people don't know what they don't know and people are very uncomfortable holding their breath, you know, and you get a lot of meatheads that come in and, you know, the number one thing that consumes oxygen is all that muscle. So, these guys are very strong and very powerful coming in, but everybody is equal in the water. So there's one story I, I really would like you to tell, because I just heard it recently on another interview you did and about, it was about the swim portion and how you, you know, you just, you did what it took <laughs> to complete the task. Will you, will you share that about your shorts? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we used to take the, 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 uh, pass test the uh physical uh stamina test uh, physical ability stamina test in basic training and you know that it everyone who wants to try out can try out and from my flight it was just me and two other guys and you know i was the only one who passed but um as we were swimming the pool was the the chaparral pool which is a 50 meter pool and when we get there, you know, we're basic trainees. We're scared as enough as it is already. And these guys dump a 55 gallon, uh, trash can full of these shorts, brown shorts with, you know, these white, uh, waist ties. And it wasn't like the, like the, uh, Ranger panties or anything like that, that, you know, that we wear, but it was just some cheap generic, you know, had a lining in it. Well, most of the shorts were missing the uh, waist ties. So, you know, I was kind of at the very end trying to get to the pile and guys are already picking out all the good ones. And, you know, I'm with whatever's remaining, you know, and so I picked up a few and I mean, you know, I got a 27, 28 inch waist and none of them fit me. And I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So I'm getting yelled at. You know, they're pick something, get in the pool. And I'm like, all right. So I just grabbed the next thing that, you know, that I that I put in my hand and yeah, we went and changed. And I'm struggling the entire time to actually keep my shorts on, you know. So now we're getting in the water and I actually completed two of the underwaters, kind of squeezing my legs together, trying to hold the the shorts together. And you get a little bit of a break before the, the, the 500 meter swim. And so I'm sitting there trying to tie it in a knot, you know, that's how big these things were. And I just, it, they kept falling off, you know? So I'm like, you know, now it's time to do the 500 meter swim. And man, I, I struggled so much for the first lap down and back. And finally, you know, and the, the cotter are yelling at us on deck, you know? And then finally I was like, screw this. I'm not going to pass unless I do something. So uh, kind of like the underwaters, I decided to just let them drop. And next thing I know, they're around my ankle. And next thing I know, they're gone. Like I completely lost my shorts. 
So here I am swimming naked and I can hear the cadre laughing and giggling, you know, and I'm like, screw this. Like I, I have to do something, you know? And so when I finished, I actually was off by a few seconds. So I failed. Were you the last guy? You weren't the last guy though, right? I wasn't the last guy, no. But I ended up failing technically. And one of the cadre and I, you know, I wish I knew his name to this day. And, you know, I've asked around and nobody can can tell me who this guy was. But, you know, he I heard him whisper to the guy grading. He says, hey, man, I saw him struggle with his shorts the entire, you know, first lap, 50 meters. You know, he's like he would have made it, you know, if he if those shorts would have stayed on, you know, and I ended up passing you know, <laughs> that to that guy, you know, that controller, that PJ that kind of you know went to bat for me so are you are you standing there on the deck with with your drawers gone or or what at this time no i was standing in the pool with my drawers gone you know and they're yelling at me and you know then they they finally they're like go get your drawers you know they're (laughs) they're making fun of my junk you know or whatever and (laughs) i went back in the water and i was you know looking underwater until i found the shorts and you know i put them on and I got out of the pool. <laughs> no, that, that's funny, man. You you did what it took <laughs> to pass. All right, so you're one of one of how many that have two silver stars in the Air Force ish? Uh, I believe it's just the one of three in the Air Force. So Sean Harvell was the first, and I, you know, I want to say it's the first for uh, you know the war on terror. I think there's other guys in history that have received multiple, but for this generation, you know, for my generation, it's Sean Harvell. Uh, then I received two and there is uh, one of my tech P counterparts that also received two and uh, his name escapes me, but one of three. Wow. Would you say in the air force, is it more difficult to get a silver star? Yeah, um, you know, the three highest awards are the Silver Star, the Air Force Cross, and, you know, the Medal of Honor being the highest. Um, they're pretty hard. Uh, they have to go up to Congress, and, you know, they, they have to – I don't know how the our officers do it, after, but they – you know, they have a PowerPoint and a quick mission synapses, and, you know, they have to cover the criteria in order – you know, whatever criteria it is to for the Silver Star or – uh, the cross or the medal of honor. And, you know, a lot of guys have no idea what a combat controller does. So, you know, the first things that they, most people see, even within the air force is like, Oh, he's air force. You know, what, what could he possibly have done to warrant, you know, such a thing. So there's a lot of politics involved with it. And, but yeah, I've seen, you know, a lot of our guys as combat controllers, you know, they do amazing things out on the battlefield and it doesn't always get reported, you know, in our after actions reports on exactly what we did. Cause we're not, we're not chasing awards, you know, but it's, it's kind of up to our leadership to interpret those kinds of things. And they battle track everything uh, at the stock, you know, the special tactics operations center. So, you know, they're the ones who ultimately determine what kind of, I guess, level of awards, but, as far as, you know, being Air Force, yeah, it's it's really tough. It is hard because the other services, you know, they're known for combat. 
you know, you have the Green Berets who do amazing things. You have the SEALs who do amazing things, Force Recon and so on and so forth, even infantry, you know, because they're the ones out there doing the shooting and the fighting. And when people don't know what a combat controller is or, you know, that we have these specialties with these kinds of skill set, those guys up in Congress have no idea. Well, your first award came from 2009, right, at COBRA. And Fob Cobra was was later named Tinsley, but would you just give some background of Cobra and what kind of what kind of crap went down there? Yeah, uh, Cobra has always been known as you know uh, a really hostile place, you know, and I think at one point it was the 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 hottest place on earth, meaning that it was you know the most hostile. And I mean, we lost uh, service there. Uh, we've had several Green Berets killed there. Um, several combat controllers wounded there, several SF guys wounded there. And I mean, it is really just a very inhospitable place. You know, we're surrounded by rivers on each side. The Hellman kind of does an H along the valleys and resupplies in general, hard to get, um, just driving back and forth. There's a lot of choke points and the level of IEDs in that place, improvised explosive devices is through the roof you know and we call it a white space which is the space that we're actually in control of most of it we don't control you know it's an enemy territory and it's almost impossible to maintain control of a lot of this territory but i mean it's it's always been known as a really uh uh, hostile place to be at Um, hence why they called it cobra (laughs) and then later when i was there uh, the SF team that I was working with uh, renamed it Tinsley in honor of uh, Captain Tinsley, who was killed uh, about a month and a half to two months before I actually arrived. When Mark went to Cobra, we, you know, we didn't know anything about it, but my brother Joseph found that that National Geographic show called Inside the Green Berets, and it was something Cobra. Do, do you remember that? I do, that was, yeah. That was filmed like maybe 07 or 08. Seems like something like that. And it was it was busy then, wasn't it? Uh, it's that place has been a hot spot, you know, since we first arrived there. Well, I, as much as I'd love to get to both of your Silver Star, like the battles, we probably won't. But, but uh, at least we'll start on the first one. I, I've got the citation here to accompany your award. There's just a few things I wanted to. To point out, like, you charge 200 feet across an open, uncleared, improvised explosive device minefield to a more effective support by fire position and immediately return fire with its personal weapon. What personal weapon was it, Fish? It was uh, my M4 rifle. M4, okay. And then it says, uh, he, while surgically and lethally executing fires on enemy positions using artillery, rotary wing, and fixed wing, close air support. And this, I can't remember, you'll have to correct me, but Joseph, my brother, one of my brothers, was at your Silver Star Citation, your award ceremony. It might have been the second one, though. And he remembers when they were reading it, he was sitting close to your mom, and he saw the look on your mom's face because he said she had this look as she was looking at you, and you were just kind of like, yeah, and she and she was. I imagine it's words like that, you know, where you you run in the open, expose yourself, and you know, executing fires. And so, is that is that what happened? Your mom was had no clue what you were doing. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, my mom knew I was coming into, you know, somewhat of a dangerous profession, you know, and uh, she knew I was deployed into Afghanistan. Obviously, you know, there's fighting going on and whatnot. And she knew my job involved having to go to war and doing these kinds of dangerous things. But, you know, I've, I've never actually told her anything about, you know, what I've done in my career, or at least up to that point, you know. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so my sister was translating, I believe it was sister translating for her. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there, they're reading off the citation, and, you know, I'm like, oh, crap. She, I knew she was, she was going to be looking at me. So I, I turned over and I saw her and I mean, I knew exactly what she was thinking. Like, you know, oh my God, you're, you're doing what you did what, you know? And, and I, you know, I think most of us, we don't tell our family because, you know, for me personally, I didn't want my mom to worry. Um, you know, I told her from the get go, I'm like, if anything ever happens to me, it, it was, you know, it was my choice. You know, this is what I wanted to do. And, you know, if if something were to happen, just want to let you guys know that this was my decision. And um, but, yeah, I think that was the, the very first time that she realized exactly <laughs> what the job entailed. <laughs> well, you're right. Y'all don't talk. I mean, every every controller and probably. Most of the other guys, like the SF guys, and the, man, they just—you definitely don't brag and you don't talk much about it. Got to kind of got to pry it out of you. So the battle was September twenty fourth, two thousand nine. For um, it says sixteen hours, I think, and it also says like thirty two enemy insurgents killed in action. We we just describe the what happened there, ish, and and what what was your role in it? Um. So you know, prior to that. Um, I was kind of on alert. Uh, I was called recalled into the squadron and, you know, they let me know that something had happened, obviously something catastrophic. And uh, Zach Reiner, uh, Air Force cross recipient, you know, I, I think he received it at that point. You know, he was in the vehicle along with uh, two or three other Green Berets. And they all got ejected minus the driver. And uh, unfortunately, you know, Captain Tinsley took the brunt of it. His tire was the side that, you know, hit the improvised explosive device. And uh, he was instantly killed. Um, so Zach finished out his time and I ended up deploying uh, as normal, you know, to the Firebase Cobra. Um, I had no idea exactly the extent of how bad that place is, but. You know, I get there and we're doing presence patrols and we go to the most outer edge of our white space. We have a checkpoint up on the hill and, you know, we have to cross the stream to get to the other side of the hill where uh, Captain Tinsley's truck still remained. And, you know, we talked about going over there and uh, blowing the truck up, um, trying to get bombs on the truck. And at the time, the just to get rid of it, just, you know, it, it's, it's more of a trophy and it's a reminder of, you know, the, uh, the Taliban won that day, you know, and so we wanted to get rid of it and they wouldn't let us blow it up using bombs or aircraft or anything like that. So uh, after a few presence patrols to kind of get myself oriented to the area, we decided to go up there and you know, use uh, explosives ourselves to get rid of it. So 
um, immediately after we crossed the river, we had one of the locals, uh, elderly man comes up and he's like, Hey, you guys don't want to go out there. You know, they've placed IEDs all over the place. So, you know, we're, we're ready for them. We have mine detectors. We had dogs that can detect the bombs or sniff them out, you know, and as we're heading up the hill, we're slowed down. And I mean, we found 10 or 11 right off the get go. And our EOD tech, you know, he can only work so fast because he's got to be really careful. You know, so we started marking them as we were going. Well, you know, we, we're not moving very fast. So uh, half the team decided to uh, recon and make sure that the houses behind us are um, empty. All the houses were empty there. And we continued forward. So, uh, hey, Ish, my, sorry. So, is this a mission like where you're going to be gone a few days and you're going to sleep out away from the base, or is it an out and back same day plan? No, it's it's technically you know out and back the same day. Okay, uh, where we can drive back. So it was supposed to be an out and back, um, and we left pretty early in the morning. You know, as soon as we wake up, have breakfast, we leave. But yeah, we're we're finding IEDs and. Um, I decided to end up going forward with uh, the the our Charlie, our demolitions guy, and the mind detecting dog and my interpreter. So, uh, you know, I get a call on the radio, and it's my team leader. The captain's calling me, you know, wondering where I was, and that's what kind of really saved our lives um at least my life the other guys were right there with me and we're discussing yeah you know I'm, I'm fine let's keep moving and as soon as we turn around you know I'm it they remote controlled initiated uh, a detonation and I mean just a massive IED and you know I was a little shell-shocked at first um I saw the explosion come out of the ground and I mean it's surreal it was you know, I saw the, the explosion, the fire, the soot, the rocks, I mean, just billowing out of the earth. And, you know, the first thought was, man, I'm dead. You know, I I had no, uh, um, I didn't think I was going to survive it. And, you know, then once I realized I'm okay, ironically enough, I, you know, I didn't have a scratch on me. Um, I just, I, I was looking for my teammates and at this point, my teammates had already run and they found a, a small berm and they were shooting back, you know, over the berm. Um, but there was no more room. I mean, they were hunched in there pretty tight. Uh, so, you know, once I came to my senses, I'm looking forward. Are you I on the ground or are you standing at this point? I'm still standing okay. at this point. And, you know, I hear all these little cracks up around me. Um and it was, it was actually bullets being fired at me. Initially, I thought it was, you know, part of the fragments of and rocks of the IED coming back down to earth. And I look across the way and there's, you know, some of the Taliban popping up shooting machine guns from the hip, which is probably our only saving grace is that they weren't, you know, accurate enough to hit because they were shooting from the hip. And so I'm looking around for cover and we're up on top of a hill and there's it's a flat hill and there's literally no cover and finally in the in the direction that they're firing at us i see a small i mean it's a very small berm and i was like well i either stay here and take my chances with you know the bullets or i take my chances with an ied 
So, I mean, I was just running as fast as I could. Again, everything is, everything is still in slow motion, you know. Had you been talking to any aircraft at this yet at this point? No, not, not at that point. You know, at that point it was just my initial, I got to get to cover. I got to move to cover and I got to start getting aircraft, you know, or artillery. Artillery was the, the most readily available at that time, you know, and, so I'm running across this minefield, you know, hoping if I step on something, you know, it either takes out my leg or it's quick, you know. Um, and then I see this hail of bullets coming at me, kind of like Neo in the Matrix, you know, where he puts his hand up and he stops. It's exactly what I saw. And I'm like, I'm about to get hit. So I slung my weapon to the, my left side and I jump into the berm. And I landed with both my arms in that berm, and I immediately felt the snap on my right hand and the burning. And then I didn't realize at the time, but my left hand was also pretty messed up. Um, and then that's when, you know, it, when I hit the ground, my radio kind of switched channels. So I'm sitting there trying to get artillery online, making comms with the truck. And then, you know, and in the meantime, I'm also listening to my guys saying that they're running out of ammo and while I'm taking pop shots, I start conserving my ammo and I'm, you know, using a couple rounds to, you know, I'm trying to hit them, but you know, I'm, I don't know if I hit any of them at that time, but you know, they were going down and then others would pop up. So I'm trying to conserve ammo. So I finally looked down at my radio and I don't know how much time has elapsed. You know, it seemed like an eternity. But I looked down at my radio and I realized that I was on the uh, I was on the wrong channel. So I finally made comms with the truck and I'm like, hey, we're you know, we're pinned down up in this hill and we're running out of ammo. And uh, next thing I know, my one of my buddies, Ivan, is driving his quad. And I'm like, man, he's going to hit an IED. And, you know, I try to direct him as best as possible. He I mean, he almost ran me over. I'm I'm laying in the prone and he jumps on off his gun or off his quad the atv and he has a uh 240 machine gun mounted to the front and he jumps off and he's like hey ish where are they at i point and he's like all right he just starts laying down fire you know and so now it, i'm focused on calling in artillery and getting in some air assets and uh josh was the other guy that ended up the second atv going to support uh, the guys that were pretty much out of ammo at this point, you know, and I directed him over to them. He does the same thing and he starts laying down firepower, um, you know, and I was down to my last mag and a half. I had a full mag in my chest rig and then my last magazine half mag in my rifle. Um, so then we start calling in artillery and, you know, we're suppressing the enemy and then I got some rotary wing assets in there and, you know, we're, we're hunting these guys down in the trenches. Um, so they're doing the shooting and moving. Uh, and then finally I get a tens and the helos talk to the a on exactly where these guys are at. And we found that there was a cave that they were all hunkered down in. And, you know, I called in a bomb from the a tens and it, it put two 500 pounders down and it collapsed the entire, uh, cave and they're not very deep, you know, in that area and you know we it, i estimated they were probably more than 32 killed just from the fighting and but 32 was the number that we confirmed for sure in that cave 
<clears throat> but you know, and all this is happening in it, it's a cra- it, it feels like a very short time. So, you know, me and the guys were pinned down on top of that hill for about 15 to 20 minutes before we got reinforcements. You know, the guys are trying to fight their way past these minefields. You know, they're moving nice and slow. We don't want another vehicle down. Uh, but once we got the momentum, I mean, it, it was on. We ended up chasing them way past our, you know, the edge of our white space. And uh, we even had them resupply us with ammunition. Um, and then sometime How later. How they do that? Uh, it was a uh, C-130. So basically the tail end, it comes up and then it goes straight up into the air and they just release that you know the pallets of ammo exactly where you want it so we're facing these things down it's it's incredible you know what they do um but yeah then you know we we were fighting throughout the night um and then the next morning is when we got the resupply um cleared the village you know found a uh, booby trap in the building and everything that luckily for us didn't go off but yeah you know 16 hours condensed into this you know it it almost doesn't seem real so i i gotta ask something this is maybe just the realist i guess in me but 16 hours i mean at some point you gotta pee don't you <laughs> yeah i mean you you pee where you can um honestly I, i've i've had to pee before during gunfights um i think because of the adrenaline and not to get too graphic but i don't recall a time where i've had to poop during gunfights it's just, you know, the body preserving itself, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you take cover, pop a couple of rounds down and then, you know, whip it out and pee where you're at. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've wondered that actually, because uh, sometimes, you know, there's occasions when, you you know, the body is in control. Oh, yeah. uh, um, so what, what about the effects of the IED ish and how long, cause you had to, I mean, you had to pr- calling accurate airstrikes after that yeah uh you know the 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 initial ied really messed up my insides i don't you know it's a, it's a really weird feeling with the overpressure on the body and you know i was actually you know pooping blood for about a week and uh the medic was gonna send me you know back to to uh kandahar to get checked out and i was like no nah, man because I was afraid that if I left, I wouldn't come in back. <clears throat> so, you know, we made a deal. I'm like, listen, man, if it doesn't stop by the end of the week, I'll definitely go. Luckily, it stopped for, you know, for me. And um, so the concussive, the overpressure of, of the bomb is, you know, does crazy things to the body. Um, and then I ended up breaking both my arms, you know, during that gunfight and, um I had no idea how bad they were really. I actually redeployed my next deployment with, you know, my arms still pretty messed up. And you've had surgery since. Yeah. I've had uh, one surgery on my right hand and I've had uh, four surgeries on my left to kind of fix it. You killed lots of terrorists with bombs. Did did you, did you kill any with your personal weapon that time in that uh, yeah, I actually uh, ended up uh, getting a few with my personal weapon. Um, one guy up on the hill, you know, he thought he couldn't be reached. And uh, as precisely as I could, you know, I'm kind of arcing the bullets at this, you know, at, at this point. But <clears throat> I just see his head whip back. 
and he falls. And later on, uh, one of our informants in town said, yeah, that, you know, that the guy had actually died because I shot him in the face, you know, but he was just blatantly standing out there thinking we couldn't reach him. Uh, and then I got a couple of uh, the 240 machine gun kills as well. So, you know, a little combination of everything, really. Yeah. OK. What what else about that? that battle what stands out because it's it's crazy and uh and y'all didn't nobody how many got injured that battle and because nobody got killed right yeah nobody got killed uh no one else got injured um you know i mean luckily you, no one else was injured but you know on the way back <laughs> we did have a, a machine gun go off uh, in one of the, one of the trucks. And as soon as it went off, you know, it let out a two round burst. And I was like, well, here we go again. And, uh, it ended up shooting one of the Afghans in the back. So they're not very careful with their weapons or they don't have a lot of weapon discipline. So guy accidentally discharged his weapon. And it was weird. Cause it's, this is a, a PKM. There's a seven, six, two machine gun and point blank. And the rounds just stuck in his back. And, you know, I, the only reason I, I, we realized this because he was complaining about his back hurting. And I told him to turn around and pull his shirt up. And there they are, two rounds lodged in his scapula, point blank, very little blood. <laughs> the scream that guy did after he found out that he'd been shot was ridiculous. Like, bro, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't scream before in nope. the until he knew he got shot. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, you know, they um, you talk about their discipline and how like they were shooting at you from the hip. I mean, that one of those videos of Mark and he's trying to tell them to aim and point and shoot. Is that so that sounds like that's typical then? Oh, it's it's very typical. Um, you know, what they'll do is they'll just shoot over the top or they'll just spray. And they're really not effective whatsoever, you know, which is, you know, I even though we train them to shoot accurately, they're I mean, they're just. It's kind of like cowboys. They, you know, they're they're more worried about. I mean, which rifle is so getting killed and whatnot. But they're, it's almost to the point to where it's really ineffective. It's like don't even shoot at all. That's not all of them. You know, I, a very small percentage of them can actually use their weapon the way that they're supposed mm. to. So in in two thousand and nine, you were pretty seasoned ish. I mean, does that get, now? Just correct me here where I'm wrong, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with this as as a combat controller. And you and I have talked about this before, but you you don't really have your own teams that you deploy with. You attach to other teams all the time. And so you're constantly, whenever you go to a new team, you've got new personalities and new chemistry to 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 I guess get along people to get along with. And they need to trust you because you're really the one calling in the bombs. Is that did you did you already have their trust at this point, or is this kind of what really made them know you were legit? Uh, you know, we do deploy onesies and twosies and, you know, it, very rarely are there two guys in the same firebase. Um, and it just so happened that I, that I was in the same firebase with another controller. Um, but you know, the beginning of nine 11, I think was one of the hardest because we did have to prove ourselves. Um, here we are, these air force guys, you know, getting attached to all these other special forces. And again, everybody just thinks air force, um, but our people have a, you know, our, our personalities, we blend right in. We get along great with the rest of the teams. 
every now and then there's issues, um, but it's not very common. Um, so we assimilate really well with the teams. We have similar training. Um, you know, we bring our everything air to ground, you know, bombs on target, resupplies, um, air landing, uh, helo landing, all kinds of stuff to the fight, you know, so we're, we're a force multiplier so we can shoot, move and communicate as well as do our job. And, you know, after nine 11, a lot of the teams kind of understood that and they realized that, and we formed a really great working relationship with them. So, you know, yeah, you're the new guy, but at the same time, you know, as long as you, you fit well, your personality is good. And, you know, you pull your part, you know, do your part of the job and it, the, the trend the the transition is almost seamless plus you know the guys that are already there you know meal train was there and uh another controller named scott was there so i've worked with them over the years and you know we always ask each other you know is hey how's this guy so they already have a warm fuzzy before i get there you know when the next guy comes in it's kind of the same thing you know we we know our capabilities and we know the capabilities of the guys coming in after us in May of, I think it was May of 2010-ish, there at the end of your deployment that time, you trained Mark. Will you share with us, because I don't think, I don't remember talking about this with you, is what did you think when you found out Mark was coming? Because you didn't know him, he was new, it was his first deployment, and then and then how did you prepare him for that area? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I've I've had a hand in, deciding where guys go you know and we send guys based on you know maturity experience um their knowledge level all sorts of factors that go into actually deciding where we put guys and you know uh when i started talking to the guys in the rear back stateside about who's going to replace me you know they they talked about mark and you know i was like okay who you know i didn't know mark at the time and i was like who is this guy He's like, well, he's brand new. Um, he's, you know, s- straight out of uh, his training for his JTAC training. And I was like, no, do not send him here. You know, I, I need somebody that's more experienced, I, you know, somebody who's seasoned. And <clears throat> the guys that were making the decision, I trust. And they assured me that, you know, they're like, hey, Mark is not a young guy. He's, you know, he's more mature. Um, the guy is ridiculously smart. You know, he, he picked up his rating right away and, you know, and they're like, and he's ready. Like he, he, he's ready to get at it. And I was like, well, okay. You know, I, I trust your guys' judgment, you know, cause I, we've made decisions like that together before. And it's like, all right. So I started talking to Mark, uh, when he found out he was coming to, or shortly after that. And I had him pull up imagery maps of the surrounding area. And I gave him a circle, you know, encompassed what he needed to know. I'm like, I need you to, I need you to remember all these terrains, like the back of your hand. I'm like, you study them. And I would send him, you know, choke points, areas where historically, you know, we get uh, uh, ambushed areas where we've had firefights because they use the same areas over and over, you know, um, taught them about, you know, easy uh, egress points for them, which is most likely where they're going to attack us because they need to run and get out of there, you know, 
pretty quick. Um, so by the time he got to me, he already knew the area and, you know, all I had to do was point out like, okay, this is this area, this is that area. And he was already familiar. Um, but yeah, when, when he came into country, it, I think it was going to be about two to three weeks before we could get him out into the fire base. And it's hard, you know, Cobra is one of those places where it is extremely hard to get resupplied. It is extremely hard to find helicopters to come in, you know, so Mark ended up hitching a ride on a medevac flight. So, you know, and I, I didn't expect him that early until I got a call from the stock and said, Hey, Mark's on his way. I'm like, what? I thought you guys said like two to three weeks. And here comes Mark. I mean, he's tall. I'm, you know, I'm five, eight and Mark is pretty dang tall. And, you know, I see him walking out of the bird and, you know, I go to meet him and I'm like, okay, Hey, now, now we know each other. And I mean, you know, immediately off the get go, Mark, like his presence alone, like he had a really commanding presence and, you know, real polite, real respectful. And he just wanted to get to work. What did you do? I mean, I, cause I remember him, he did send us some pictures. Uh, I'm sure it was while you were still there and he, like he was riding a four wheeler and he had this, he had his multicam pants on, but he had this crimson, you know, Alabama bright uh-huh. shirt on. Uh, and my, we're like, Mark, for heaven's sake, please change your shirt right now. It's- yeah. Well, we were, we were in relatively uh safe areas. So him and I would, you know, <clears throat> go out on quads in our, uh, our white space, so to speak. And uh, we, I ended up taking him out on a few presence patrols, same way that I was, you know, kind of oriented to the environment and uh, really no, no, con- no uh, contact with the enemy or anything. And, you know, I actually remember taking him out to uh, our forward most edge on the Eastern side of our battle space. And, you know, I'm just sitting there behind the rocks kind of looking over and <clears throat> Mark is standing up and I'm like, Hey man, I'm like, you might want to get down, man. I'm like, they're watching this, you know? And so all of a sudden, like you hear over the, you know, the, the walkie talkies that they use that they're watching me and Mark up on that Hill. And I'm like, bro, they're watching us. I'm going to get down. You know, all got like, antennas. I'm guessing, right. Big antenna zone. Yeah, those guys were those two antennas are were magnets. You know, they they want to shoot us. They want to kill us. But, uh, you know, it's funny. Mark said something to me that day and he's like, he's like, yeah, well, I forget how we got into the conversation, but he's like, I'm here to kill terrorists. And I'm like, you know, God had sent him to kill terrorists. And, uh, you know, I just remember thinking or no, I told him, I'm like, you're definitely going to get the opportunity here, buddy. I'm like, just get down right now <laughs> <laughs> well, what about your but, oh yeah go ahead Ish, sorry no but on these presence patrols you know i'd teach him uh i'd show him the areas i'd utilize the aircraft and you know hey i'm i tell the aircraft to go search here and then i tell mark this is why you know historically this is where they'd come up or you know they hide their weapons in certain areas or this is where i think they're watching us from and you know, little by little, I started handing him control of the radio and he started, you know, controlling the aircraft. And, you know, right towards the end where, you know, it's finally coming my time where I'm, I'm like, man, I've taught you everything that I know here. And I mean, really, really quick learner. And Mark would 
you know, I'm sitting there sitting beside him, whether on the truck or on the ground. And Mark would keep always looking at me you know, over his shoulder. And then finally, I'm like, hey, man, why do you keep looking over your shoulder? He's like, well, I'm waiting to get yelled at, you know. <laughs> you know, I think I'm screwing up. I'm like, dude, I'm like, if I'm not saying anything, you're good to go, bro. I'm like, keep going, you know. And, um, But, yeah, it, you know, I th- that's the extent. And I think I was there with him for two, two and a half weeks before I finally departed. So what's the story with your nemesis? Because this is in the book, uh, yeah. but I don't even know. You, well, you haven't told me that story since that long ago when I put it in the book. So I don't remember many details. Yeah, there was a, there was a, a, a guy that was spotting. He'd call in. You know, he does the same thing we do, call for fires. Um, so they had a few mortar tubes, and this guy would always sit on the side of the hill. And, I mean, he was accurate. He was good. You know, that's how uh, Ray Girard got hurt. You know, they, they called in uh, enemy mortars on their positions and stuff like that. You know, is Ray the one that replaced Mark? Yes. Uh, or came shortly after him, maybe? Yeah, came shortly after. It was him and George were there together. Okay. So, but yeah, the, you know, I was hunting this guy down. For the longest time, I would sit out there with binoculars and thermals, and I'm constantly scanning the areas, trying to find him. And, you know, when I got before I left, I told Mark, I'm like, your job is to find this dude. And I gave him the general area where, you know, he usually spots from. And Mark ended up finding him. And I, you know, I got a message one time that's like, hey, I got him. I'm like, yes, you know, it's. Mark ended up getting him, and that was my nemesis. The entire time I was at Cobra for the nine months, I was trying to find this guy and kill him. And Mark, got- <laughs> well, I think probably your last mission ish, uh, y'all were wrapping it up, coming back to base, and and Mark had called for a flyover. You know, he said that you know sarcastically he had been consoling you, you know, for so long because you were you were no longer the primary JTAC, and and um, he wanted to give you a flyover in your honor. Is that, is that what happened? Yeah. And you know, the funny thing is he wouldn't be a sarcastic. Like I was really, really bummed. I was leaving. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. And all the guys, you know, kind of knew it. Cause I did not want to leave, you know, I was even trying to, you know, tell the stock, Hey man, I could do a few more months here. You know, I'm like, he needs to be trained up some more, you know, but, you know, unfortunately, they didn't. And, uh, you know, that day, I think it was the day where I finally let him have full control of, of the uh, all the air assets, you know. And we were actually on our way back home and we were done for the day. And, you know, Mark asked the aircraft to do a flyover, you know, sh- uh, uh, kind of like a show of force over our location. And sure enough, you know, the, the uh, Kiowas that... Uh, I'd been working with forever, but they came in overhead and, you know, it was pretty cool. It was one of the coolest things that, you know, really anybody's done for me. And it was, it was pretty memorable. Well, that was a portion of the book that AFSOC asked me to not put in the book because I sent them the manuscript. At least I sent them all the chapters that involved basically the military and they came back with some suggestions and, 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 I listened, I, I followed, I did what they asked me to do on every one of them, but a few. And that was one of them. Cause they said, you know, due to, you know, 
budget restraint constraints and sequestration. Um, you know, we don't want you to put this in here, but I felt like it was important to to show his his personality and his respect for you to leave that in there. So I did. Yeah. I, you know, they they can say whatever, but, you know, we do show of forces with aircraft all the time, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, those those pilots fly low and slow anyway. You know, they're always, you know, I've seen some of those guys actively seek out rounds so that they can identify where, you know, these bad guys are. They're actively trying to get shot at so that, you know, their partner can come in and shoot the bad guys, you know, shoot the enemy wherever they're taking fire from. And, you know, especially finishing up a patrol and they're already on their way back. Like, I don't, you know, to somebody who doesn't know, you know, doesn't know. And yeah, they may complain, but that's something that it's like, Hey, we're not abusing. We're not, you know, misusing resources. They're already on the way out and they're already low to begin with, you know? So you can't make everybody happy. Yeah. That's a good point. Cause I had a guy one time tell me that um, it looked careless and I shouldn't have shared a video that I did. It, it might've been that video. I'm not sure, but that day, but, it was one of Mark's helmet camp videos and, and I decided to share it. And, but then I asked you about it. I was like, it's really, should I not have shared that? Does it look, does it look like Mark did, you know, didn't care. And he's like, you're like, no, screw him. No way. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So yeah, I appreciated that. I mean, it was on the way out. It was well within our, you know, uh, white space, you know, safe space. <clears throat> so, you know, we don't ask him to do anything that'll jeopardize the aircraft or anything like that. And, you know, the pilots know, I mean, they're, they're not, they're not dummies, you know, they're, they know mm -hmm. when they do it. And, you know, even, even in some of the most uh, dangerous places, places where we're getting shot up or whatever, they'll come down, you know, cause they're in the same fight we are. And obviously they want us to survive. We want them to survive. So they're helping us and we're helping them, you know, some of these folks do amazing things, you know, our air assets, folks who support us, you know, um, they do incredible things. I mean, I've had guys, you know, punch through the weather. We had we've got a 500 cloud deck and we're, we're pinned down and we're taking fire. I've had eight tens come below the cloud deck, you know, just to help us get out of those situations and bring our guys back home, you know? Well, and they, but they have to trust you too, right? I mean, they're not going to do it if they don't trust the guy on the ground talking to them. Would they? Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you had more deployments. You got another silver star. If you, I think in 2011, right? This one was 2009, 2011, you got one. Um, which one was the worst, like the worst bat worst situation, the, the first one or the second one? Well, um, I don't know. That That's kind of hard to, you know, like I enjoyed as weird as it sounds, you know, we all live for the fight. You know, we live for these types of situations. So it, you know, some are, some of the fighting is worse than others, but you know, as far as, you know, the deployments, um, to me, honestly, my last deployment was one of the more fun deployments, if you will, because, you know, at Cobra, I'm there for nine months, but we're, you know, fighting is sporadic. There's a lot of fighting, but, it, you know, it doesn't happen all at once. You know, like 16 hours was the longest firefight that I had at Cobra. Um, but then for my second rotation, it was literally a 21-day gun battle. You know, we were fighting for 21 days. 
And before that, we fought it out for a week, you know. So, yeah, it, it's I, I can't say that one is harder than the other or one's better than the other. I mean, if anything, I'd say my last deployment was definitely uh, fun. It was reminded me of back in the old days when we first started deploying where we had a hell of a lot of freedom of maneuver versus the restrictions that I had when I was at Cobra. I'd say those are the two biggest differences is Cobra. I was a lot more restricted. And when I went out to uh, Kajaki out in Helmand, it was a lot more freedom. So, so Cobra, you, Obama was the president. Did that have something to do with it? And then was there a different president? Was, was Trump in your last appointment or is that uh, timing off? I can't. When did Trump take office? Cause it was 16. No. Yeah. So who, who was president in 09? Was it Obama? Obama. Uh, I mean, we were really restricted. I mean, we were even restricted in, you know, 2011. But, you know, for whatever reason, you know, reasons that I can't get to, they let us have a lot more freedom of maneuver. Okay. Hmm. What about the toll on your body-ish now? I mean, how many... How many surgeries have you had all together and what, what's your, your physical body like? Um, I've had about uh, 12 or 13 surgeries and, you know, I'd say my knees are great, which is the only thing on my body. That's great. <laughs> you know, my left arm is still pretty limited. Uh, my right arm's a heck of a lot better. I just, it's not as strong. Uh, you know, I broke my back in 2004 broke my leg in the same rotation as, you know, when I was at Cobra and then a lot of concussions, um, traumatic brain injury type, you know, stuff. Um, but you know, I, it's hard getting around and, you know, I feel all the aches and pains. Uh, I've done a little bit of different types of treatments that, you know, have actually made my life a little bit easier, but I'm, I can't complain too much. I'm blessed. You know, some of these guys, you know, they lose a hand or whatever. And, you know, some, some guys don't come back, you know? So I feel like I am truly blessed to have walked away with very little or minor injuries, what I call them. What are some of the things that you've done that have helped you? Uh, I've done stem cell treatment. Um, I've also done a lot of therapy and the surgeries, obviously, and um, stem cell, I think, was the biggest thing. Uh, it's like the latest and greatest uh, type of stem cell, um, but it's it actually decreased the pain in my body as a whole. Um, and then I'm doing a couple other, you know, natural type supplements to help me with my sleep and um, and then therapy too, you know, to help me with a lot of the stuff that, you know, I was dealing with after, you know, after deployment, after deployment. Yeah. Well, man, you're, you're just a selfless American and, and my family appreciates you and your friendship to us and to Mark. And um, yeah, you've, you've sacrificed your body, you know, physically and mentally and emotionally. And, and uh, we, we don't even have a clue what it's like, but you've got, you know, your father of three and, got divorced sometime around I'm guessing 2011 time frame is that yeah. right 2011 was uh when I got divorced and, and a lot of it was the job you know I had changed I became a completely different person you know 
and I wasn't able to give her what she needed. And um, really, I was just I was going down a path. I was digging a hole for myself every single time, every time I deployed. And, you know, I'd come home and there's nothing wrong with me. You know, obviously there was, but, you know, I was in denial. And I think that led to ending my marriage. Well, we're certainly happy for you and him and, and your kids. And uh, would you do it again, Ish, if you could go back to 1997? Yeah, man, I, I, I'll be honest with you. You know, I, I've seen and worked uh, with some of the most amazing people. I've met some of the most amazing people. Um, I've done what, you know, less than 1% of the world will ever do um, as far as experiences and you know, different things. And I mean, I've met incredible people throughout uh, this entire process. And no, I, I wouldn't change it for the world. You were good at your job. And I know you've had the opportunity to train our guys since. And um, you're, you're, you're out of that job now. You've, you've got a, I'll put your Instagram link or handle on if you're good with that. Cause you're, you're definitely entertaining many people enjoy your commentary on whatever the subject is and appreciate you not holding back. <laughs> uh, anything in, in closing ish? No. Yeah, man. You know, I just want to let you know how amazing Mark was, man. Um, like I, I, I literally, you know, obviously Mark's not with us anymore, but the guy changed my life. Uh, he's impacted my life. And I meet people literally from all over the world that, you know, Mark has touched in some capacity or another. So Mark was just an incredible human being. Well, thank you. And uh, thanks for training him over there and, uh, you know, for being good to us and visiting us. And, um, you know, we're coming up on 12 years now here. By the time this airs, we'll, we'll, all, we'll be close to the 29th of September, 12 years. And then, oh, the other thing is, is, you know, Mark is buried wearing your beret. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was, that was a, I know to some people it may sound, you know, dumb, but when we saw Mark's hair in that casket, I was glad that they, they made the part the right way. Cause we told him which direction to part his hair, but his haircut looked awful. It was, it was just, and we, I did not want mom to see that. I think she, she probably did see it ish, I think, but you were fortunately, I don't know. Did she see his hair? I, I think she did see it. And, uh, you know, you guys were talking about fixing, fixing it, <clears throat> you know, and uh, I suggested, I'm like, Hey, we can put his beret on, you know, it, but you guys didn't have the beret at the time. So it was like, here's mine, you know, use my beret. I mean, you know, the beret means a lot to us and it's the least thing I could do. And quite honestly, it was, it's an honor. It's an honor to have given it to him. Yeah, no, that was, that was real special. And because Tim Pinkert from the funeral home had called Joseph and David and me back when, when Mark's body first got there, he wanted us to see him first before mom and Terry did mom and dad and Terry. And of course, you know, no body looks, looks good and it didn't look good, but you know, we, we knew that it wouldn't look exactly like him, but yeah, the hair, we knew something, we really wanted something done about it. So 
Yeah, appreciate you for that. <laughs> All right, Ish, anything in closing? No, sir. Thanks for having me. It's an honor, you know, having you guys as friends. Like, you know, your you guys' family is amazing. And uh, I see where Mark got it from. So, well, man, thank you so much. And uh, we love you and him and, and uh, look forward to meeting your, your kids. And, and I'll see you in December at the wedding. Brother, we'll see you in December. Thanks for listening to my show today. I'm trying to grow the popularity of Patriot to the Core podcast. And I've been doing this since 2016 and yet am still under 100,000 downloads. So now that I'm on Spotify, will you give me a five-star rating and write a review? If you don't feel like it deserves a five-star, then please give it what you feel it deserves. But uh, Spotify requires you to listen to at least one episode before you can rate and review. But the good news is you, you have the option to speed up the episodes. So if you weren't already listening to this on Spotify... Of course, Apple Podcasts allows this opportunity too. You can speed it up 1.2, 1.5, two times or more the speed so you can get through them quicker. If Apple Podcasts, which is formerly iTunes, is your player of choice, then please rate and review it there also. But these ratings and reviews are critical to becoming easily found and so that the podcast player recommends my podcast to other listeners. But thank you for the support and thank you if you've already rated and reviewed the podcast. And if you have a recommended guest for me for my show, please email me at fad at patriottothecore.com. See you next time.